0: Hi there. I'm Evan Troxell. Welcome to my podcast about how technology is changing the architectural profession. Welcome back to the podcast. My name is Evan Troxell. I think that we're off to a really great start this year on the podcast. I have to say I've been getting a lot of great feedback thanks to all of you listeners on social media, especially on Twitter. And I would just encourage you to share this show with people who you think would enjoy listening to it or would be challenged by it. Uh, Obviously, our profession is a big one, and I would love it if this gets outside of the typical echo chamber of technologists in architecture. In this episode, I speak with Phil Bernstein. And Phil is an architect, a technologist, and educator who has taught at the Yale School of Architecture since 1988— where he also received his BA and M.Arch and is currently the associate dean and adjunct professor. He was formerly a vice president at Autodesk, where he was responsible for setting the company's future vision and strategy for BIM. And prior to Autodesk, Phil was a principal at Pelly Clark Pelly Architects. And he is the author of Architecture, Design, Data, Practice Competency in the Era of Computation, which he wrote in 2018. He is a senior fellow of the Design Futures Council and former chair of the AIA National Contract Documents Committee. So Phil has definitely been around our profession. He's touched a lot of aspects of it, and I would propose that he's considered an oracle of sorts for AEC, and that's for many reasons, partly because of his background, which I just covered, and partly because of his continued speaking and writing about the topics of technology, practice, and project delivery. I've included links to a few recent articles and books in the show notes for this episode. The last time that I spoke to Phil in person was at the Design Technology Summit at the Built Conference in Seattle, where he was also a featured speaker on the main stage. That's also where I got my copy of his latest book, which he was gracious enough to sign for me. And that book also came up in a recent episode with Anthony Hauk of Hypar. And so again, that's linked in the show notes for this episode. So in this conversation, we talked about architectural education in which Phil is immersed in at Yale in his upcoming course entitled Exploring New Value in Design Practice, where the class is exploring ideas around how we can make design a more profitable practice. We also talked about value propositions in architecture, digital collaborative design tools used or in some cases not used in school and in practice. We got a little bit into VR and designing for the experience and we, of course, talked about business models for AEC and so many other things. So, without further ado, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Phil Bernstein. Awesome. So, how are you doing? Oh, I'm all right. Looks like there's some sunshine over there. Not really. No?
1: I live in Connecticut and I'm looking out the window right now and it's cloudy. Yeah. And it's actually snowing at this moment, but it's not sticking.
0: Yeah, I mean it looks like a nice soft lighting then. I mean you're you're getting the oh, soft this room? Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's by design. Where are you? I'm in Southern California. I'm near LA. I'm in a town called Claremont, which is like a college oh, yeah. college town. Yeah. Yeah, so, Claremont. One yeah. of
1: my cousins went to the school there.
0: Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah, my mom worked at the colleges for twenty five years, so I've grown up in this area.
1: Oh, well, that's good. Well, it's I'm sure the weather's better. If the pandemic is worse, the weather's at least better. Yeah.
0: So. Yeah, it's been a weird winter. We've gotten one rain in the last nine months, so we're
1: supposed to get a bunch yeah. next week, hopefully. We've actually only had one snowstorm with any real snow all winter, which is great. I mean, not, you know, frankly, not that it matters to me, because I barely, I mean, you know, you can't leave your house. Yeah, yeah. I barely go out of my house. Right. So I, it's fine. Yeah, <laughs> it's but, fine. <laughs> okay, I'm, 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 you know, look, I can't complain right i have a house that i bought we bought this house 20 god how long ago was it we bought this house in 1992 so it's 28 years ago raised four kids in it. it is a big house we're still here they're not yeah yeah we got plenty of room yeah during the work day my wife has her own floor i have my own floor <laughs> so um Frankstein
0: Corporation is uh, is running well. Running it's, well.
1: We're, I mean, it's it's the artifact of having raised four children. Yeah, and not having you know we talked last year about eh, should we get rid of this house and mm. nesters, mm. but you know we, we're starting they're starting to produce grandchildren now they're coming back maybe not let's see And then wow you know I've been pretty much sitting in this chair since the middle of March of last year. Yep. Yep. Me too. Yeah, it's tough.
0: That part of it's tough for me. I I actually built out this space, same chair, different room, um, because I was in the bedroom for quite a while um, and just like remodeled one large room into two. And it's been it's been nice to have a change of scenery. And then I'll force myself to take the laptop off the desk and go somewhere else and and sit. And it it helps. Um, But I don't do that enough for sure.
1: Yeah, I, I have too much infrastructure here to move around, you know, mm-hmm. I, I got things exactly the way I want them. Yeah. Screens in the right place, mm-hmm. lights, cameras, all that stuff. So I don't move around that much.
0: Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I thought maybe we could start by talking about school, start talking about students and the, the kind of ideas that you're exploring with business models. Sure.
1: Well, about five or six, uh, probably six years ago at this point, um, I started teaching this course called exploring new values of design practice and the thought was that there was an emergent interest amongst you know architecture students are like students everywhere they're all they're very much caught up in the innovation startup i want to do my own thing yeah mode Mm -hmm. which matches up very nicely with my interest in finding alternative value propositions for architectural practice. So, I decided to start teaching a class on this topic, which was it it operates sort of in three modalities. In one modality, we try to deconstruct the business models of traditional architectural practice, both looking at strategy and mechanics. Mm -hmm. So, I want them to understand the actual mechanisms of how, when dollars come in the door, how they convert, how that actually flows so they can understand. How time is converted into money, but also strategy, which is a very discontinuous thing in architectural practice mm. that a lot of firms, the strategy of a lot of firms is the explicit strategy of a lot of firms is I'm a better designer than you, but firms have a lot of implicit strategies by which they position themselves. They specialize in certain markets. They specialize by scale. They specialize by geography. They operate their... Good at certain kinds of building types, they're good at delivery, they're high designers. There's all sorts of different dials you can turn there. So we spend some time working on that. Then we spend time looking at business models and business strategies in the building industry and in other disruptive creative endeavors, just to have something to compare to. Mm-hmm. So let's see. I have my syllabus here that I'm teaching this course this semester. We start in a couple of weeks. So this semester I'm going to have a guy who runs a venture capital fund for AEC firms and what companies he's seeing. The guys from Spacemaker that uh, Autodesk just acquired is a kind of a startup. Um, uh, somebody who does design architect-led design build, someone who does architect-led uh, development, somebody from sidewalk labs, a contractor, somebody who specializes in research as a value proposition. A couple of practitioners, just a real mix of different sorts of folks who talk about how they manipulate their business models to generate value in a different way. And then the real proposition of the semester is you have to design a business. And the definition of a business is anything you use your architectural talents, training and skills in the service of doesn't even have to be in the building industry. But it has to be predicated on a non-commoditized value proposition. In other words, your business cannot charge fixed fees nor hourly fees. Interesting. So you have to translate the value proposition into a different monetization strategy in order to demonstrate that you have a different value proposition.
0: How many times have you taught this course so far? I think this year will be the
1: seventh. Okay. Do you get a lot of
0: like the value proposition as a product kind of a idea coming out of this? I'll send you a copy
1: of this article that I wrote. Last year in AD, um, Dennis Sheldon, who at the time was at Georgia Tech, but is now at RPI, edited an edition of AD called The Disruptors. Mm -hmm. And I wrote an article about this course where I tried to describe typologically the different kinds of projects I'd seen, because at that point I'd seen probably 50 projects. And they tend to fall into three categories. One set of projects is The architect and the architect as an architect and a developer, the architect as an architect and a contractor. So that was one set of strategies. The second set of strategies didn't try to assume both roles, but to try to create a bridge between the, between one or more roles. So for example, someone would propose a being an IPD integration platform that they would serve as the IPD integrator on a project or a data translator between construction information and building asset operation. So they weren't controlling those things like in a project delivery sense, they were creating a bridge between two or more sectors of the phenomenon. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then the third category were all the cats and dogs, which were mostly things that the students felt the building industry needed that they didn't have. Mm -hmm. You know, software ideas, services ideas, I've seen some really crazy stuff like a model curation service. Like I worked in a firm where there were a lot of models and nobody knew what to do with the models. So you can store your models with us and we'll take care of them. And we'll have a little model museum in the front.
0: It's like the Indiana Jones warehouse
1: with. Exactly. (laughs) You know, I mean, that was probably somebody that, for example, had worked for Frank Gary and, you know, the other side of Frank's office is this giant model model shop. Yeah. Right. So just lots of episodic ideas. Yeah. That are like that. Sometimes the students get enamored of the gig economy and try to map those kinds of ideas. Sometimes they grab a hold of something they think is a really serious problem, like we are an integrated design build firm that guarantees price.
2: Mm.
1: You know, and it's just very interesting to see them exercise their muscles with yeah. this.
0: And, and how long does that process, do you, do you take to go through that process with them? I you, The it's whole semester, great. but like that, it's is not. that like the final project is to actually yes. design this business? And how long is that project right there?
1: When we first started teaching the course, we teach, it's a 13 week semester and then a, a week of final reviews. And we teach 10 weeks and give them, and start them off on the final project in the last three. Okay. But as we've been teaching the course, the beginning of the project process development process has crept earlier and earlier in the semester. Yeah. And I've created different techniques for doing that. Now what we do is by the midpoint of the semester, once they've gotten their feet wet, um, we actually run a weekend ideation workshop mm. with a colleague who's actually going to be teaching a course in the fall. But she's an architect who spent most of her career with IDEO.
2: Yeah.
1: She teaches ideation methodologies and she gets them together fairly early so they can workshop their ideas and eventually form coalitions and eventually form teams. Okay. And so by after spring break, which is roughly in a normal year, the midpoint of the semester, we don't have a spring break this year. They're working on something. Yeah, interesting. And they work on it for about six or seven weeks. But you got to remember, these are architecture students. Yeah. Their attention lofts. It's their wane. side
0: job. It's their side job. Yeah. side studio. Right. Yeah. Wow. And, and so the, the guest speakers that you're bringing into that, obviously, very kind of entrepreneurial and maybe a- more avant-garde than traditional practice, obviously. And then there's the, the students themselves in typical traditional architectural education is is one thing. It sounds like you're taking a different tact at that and looking at training, at least these who are interested in entrepreneurialism, because I think a lot yeah. of times the the traditional architectural professional training is in working for a firm.
1: Well, because I teach that course in the fall. I teach the required professional practice course yeah. in the fall. Interesting. So this is a this is kind of that course has a subtext of these are the characteristics of the profession in the industry that you need to understand and challenge. Yeah. And so those people that are really interested in that idea get a chance to challenge them. In my second semester course but my first semester course is required yeah so in a normal year when we have a full cohort it's 60 students right my second semester course varies in size between maybe 14 and 24 but what you need to remember is we're a really small school
2: mm-hmm.
1: and 24 students of our 240 graduate students at any given time only about 150 of them are allowed to take elective courses mm-hmm. To get 24 out of 150 in a you know quote unquote elite design school working on a problem like this, pretty good. Yeah. It says a lot of interest.
0: And so outcomes. Have you seen students pursue any of these after they they leave the site? a few. Yeah.
1: But it's hard because I also strongly encourage them to go get a license. Yeah. Yeah, I was gonna... And they need to be working and working toward their license. And I don't think it's um, some of my colleagues would probably disagree with me, but I have an ethical problem with charging someone the kinds of prices that we charge for a Yale education and then telling them it's not necessary for them to get a license. Yeah. I guarantee you no one at the Yale medical school is telling their graduates not to sit for the medical boards and no one at the Yale law school is telling their students not to sit for the bar exam. Yeah, it's totally expected. Yeah. hundred percent. So that's, That's the problem, but they do go off and do things. And it's a little early to tell because my students, I've been teaching for three decades now since I was a puppy and my students, and especially in the last decade have begun to articulate a strong desire not to practice in traditional ways. Mm -hmm. I tell their potential employers that these people want to work for you long enough to get a license Mm -hmm. and some experience. And then they're, they're leaving now. For us at Yale, most of our graduates eventually start their own practices anyway. It's just mm-hmm. in the nature of our culture.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But people are off doing some other stuff. So we'll see. It'll yeah. be a decade before we know whether any of this stuff is meaningful.
0: I think the last time that we talked in person, it was at in Seattle at the Built conference in the Design Technology Summit. And one yep. of the topics that came up there, which I think kind of dovetails into the just talking about the traditional business model is is kind of how it's set up, <laughs> I almost want to say designed to fail from the beginning, where we were really talking about the topic of the project is awarded to the architect with the lowest fee. And, and, and I'm coming kind of from a public work kind of a standpoint, but I know it's bigger than that even. Um, lowest fee for the, for the architect, for the professional. And then you award the job to the lowest bidder. Projects themselves are you know to be profitable, less time spent on the project is better quote unquote better
1: well there's certainly a strong incentive to spend as little time as possible since time is money
0: right and what's interesting about that particular little bullet point is that you know a lot of architects are salaried and they're getting paid the same way whether they spend more time or less time on it you know depending on what you have to do and how many jobs you're working on all those things I've never seen a project turn out worse because people have spent more time on it Obviously, there's <laughs> there's economics and all kinds of things in there. But but it's, it's interesting kind of thinking about that. Do you guys talk about that in the course as well? I always I assume that you spend a, quite a bit of time looking at existing business models, which are kind of majority-type business models, which we see in the profession.
1: Yeah, and the majority of my students in that course have taken my professional practice course in the previous semester. Mm-hmm. So they have been deeply immersed in... Mm. The theories of value propositions and the tactics of fees, fee strategies, fee calculations, and they spend an entire week manipulating a financial model of a firm. Mm. So they actually have to go through an exercise where they look at the financial model, an operating model of a firm that varies utilization, overhead, time, uh, average direct labor rates salaries, mm-hmm. and they have to go through an exercise where they can really internalize what it means to give someone a raise, what it means to lower your utilization, what it means when your profit margins are set at 5%, 10%, 20%. So they they understand those mechanics. Most of my students do very well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So do you feel like a lot of the projects that, that then they start working on in that is under their own direction, right? I assume that there's some level of they get to pick the type of business that they're going to design and model.
1: Absolutely. Complete freedom. And almost nobody picks in traditional architecture.
0: And do you feel like that's reactive or do you feel like that's, I mean, because it's not, that's not going to live long in this world? Or what do you, what do you think?
1: I think given the chance to experiment in a kind of, My roommates in the business school taking innovation strategy away. Mm -hmm. They want to really experiment. They want, I mean, and and in our program, we prize unique, thoughtful, well-reasoned, new ideas. Mm -hmm. And I think that students don't want to mess around with the don't want to mess around with the edges of a problem. They want to either throw out the model or try something different. And the fact is, at traditional architectural practice, for service practice, is rather inflexible as to how to change the value proposition. Yeah, You either work really efficiently, pay people really low amounts of money, or go work someplace where you don't have much competition. That's basically it. Yep. What other dials do you have to turn?
0: Right. And, and that leads to kind of this churn business, right, where you just have to feed that machine over and over again. And I can imagine, do you guys right. talk about that as, as a topic as well?
1: Oh, not only do we talk about the fact that you have to feed the machine, we do a partial session just looking at the financial implications of carrying costs of things as banal as accounts receivable. Because, you know, I try to explain to the students, that paycheck that you just received at the end of two weeks is money that has not come into the firm's coffers. yet. Right. And the longer it takes that money to come into the firm's coffers, we, we, the way we try to explain that to our students is by saying you can have a firm that on paper looks really profitable, but in reality is sucking wind. Because if your days of day DSO, your days of sales outstanding or accounts receivable stretch out past much past 30 days, then you're borrowing money to cover payroll, which reduces your margins.
2: Yeah.
1: I mean, I know this is really banal stuff to be yeah. talking about in a Yale classroom but they need to hear this yeah you know part of your job is collecting money and why one of my colleagues that runs a small practice i have a constellation of practitioners that help me teach this course mm-hmm. um, for lots of reasons i need to help i'm not practicing right now but my my co-instructor who runs a small practice in here in new haven you know his average accounts receivable is 10 days so he can stand up in front of these guys and say This is the effect that this has on my practice. Yeah. The average accounts receivable in the architecture world is 110 days. Yeah. So I say to my students, are you a bank? You're basically loaning your clients money. Right. Are you a bank? Mm. And so, you know, we talk about whether or not there's a discount for paying in less than 30 days. Mm -hmm. And why not?
0: Incentivizes the process. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So when you've got, that kind of a mentality, and I think you know a thing or two about technology and how it's changing the profession, seems to me like it's pretty obvious why technology has not changed the profession in meaningful ways other than trying to find efficiencies in the system of churn. It's very much so. Like If you had to generalize it down to that, it seems like you're trying to find very small things that you can do with a computer, for instance, to help make that process a little less painful, but not there's no reinvention happening here
1: I agree, and it it pains me greatly to yeah. agree with you, but I've drawn that conclusion on my own
2: mm-hmm. it
1: was the conclusion that I was talking to someone from Boston uh, Dynamics today about I'm writing a book right now on AI and the professions I've been Doing some research and just comparing some notes today with the guys from Boston Dynamics, the robotics guys, mm-hmm. about what it means to have a robot operating on a construction site.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And one of the issues of robotics on a construction site is that you need some kind of context for the uh, robot to operate in. And it would be, it would seem obvious that a building information model, for example, would provide that context,
2: mm-hmm.
1: but nobody does it. Mm-hmm. And so they don't really – they're trying to figure out how to bridge the possibilities of a building information model that languish in the architect's office as a useful artifact on a construction site. And that conclusion that they've drawn is a proxy for the broader conclusion that some combination of the profession's disinterest in innovation, risk avoidance, an unwillingness to innovate and a failure on the part of the vendors has basically created a circumstance where the technologies of the profession have largely changed dramatically in the last 10 years from CAD to BIM, but the processes have not changed and the outputs have not changed. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Things are more efficient.
0: Right. But it's still a means to that paper end, right? Yeah. So
1: everybody was super excited about AutoCAD because it could produce better working drawings. You know, and I was deeply involved in the Revit mm-hmm. phenomenon. The assertion being that the building industry would finally get into a world where there were really powerful tools that could transform processes. And none of it's happened. Yeah. Yeah, because, I mean, the, again, the process is incentivized
0: for shortcuts, right? Because because the model is not the, the single source of truth. It's a means to that paper end, which is, you know, the, the contract documents are that so-called single source of truth with all of the errors and omissions that come along with that uh, part of being the profession that we are.
1: Well, why would we as a profession decide that this, the point of the exercise is a set of working drawings? Right. That is a
0: decision. I agree.
1: Yeah. A, a set of working drawings is a means to an end. And what I wrote about in my last book was changing the ends is the only way we're going to change this construct yeah we have to get to an outcome-based way of doing our work
0: which leads us back to the business model right (laughs) (laughs) so what kinds of ideas have you or your students explored with this longer term bigger framework kind of business models because again like the way that you just framed it as a decision is I, i think it's spot on this is one of those things where we have collectively developed this construct that we are perfectly happy to continue to work within without actually stepping back and looking at the big picture and where we're headed we as you know the profession to make that change happen i had an episode earlier you know mid middle of last year with an architect in indiana and we talked about this idea of like a 50 year business model where you could continue to upgrade the os of a building and have it perform better and get paid via that over time, rather than for this very short period of time up front in the life of, yeah. of a building project.
1: The way I, have, I started working this thinking out uh, in my last book, kind have been trying to elaborate it, but my thesis is that you have to get into a business model that is about doing things, not exchanging commodities. Architecture is supposed to do stuff. There are, and there are short-term things and long-term things, and there are low-level things and high-level things. Mm-hmm. And there's actually a hierarchy of outcomes that can be ascribed to a successful the successful life cycle of a building. And if architects can begin to get paid for making things happen as mm-hmm. opposed to making working drawings and then hoping the things right. happen. Right. that's what we do now, right? We make working runs and
0: we hope that things happen. Yeah, we've talked about it on the show with several guests. It's it's design is hypothesis and that hypothesis is rarely tested after keys are handed over by the contractor. That data is not continued to be collected and learned from to test whether the prototype actually works or not because you're busy working on the next thing and that leads to this warehouse of BIM models, right? That never see the light of day
1: again. Right, and so the way I describe this is there's a hierarchy of these kinds of outcomes that are a function of risk Mm -hmm. and the aspiration of the team and the degree to which the team collaborates with one another. So at the low end of the continuum of outcomes, where you're just working as the architect, you could do things like deliver your drawings on time, meet the owner's brief correctly, uh, conform to whatever the cost model is and once you expand that universe to include the contractor there are a different set of outcomes that become possible around cost and project schedule and delivery and uh, systems commissioning and then once you include the owner then it starts to get sort of interesting because the owner has two categories of outcomes they're interested in one is a kind of um, building operation outcome like how much energy is this building using? How much staffing are we requiring? How long do the carpets last? You know, how happy are the people occupying it? Mm-hmm. But the last category is, why did the owner build this building in the first place? Yeah, You know, why did they build this hospital, this school, this shopping center, this library, this research laboratory? They built it to do some stuff.
0: They built it to employ architects, right?
1: Well, they certainly, no. <laughs> they certainly didn't build it to meet a budget or a schedule.
0: Right. And they didn't do it to employ an architect either. Right. Like that. I think a lot of times our businesses, that churn is so embedded that we just get to do these kinds of things. And that is absolutely not why they built that building.
1: Yeah. And so the thesis is that in some form, technology makes it more likely that the proposition of designing construction is more precise and more predictable in mm-hmm. terms of outcomes. Mm hmm. And if those two principles are in fact the case, one should begin to be able to make promises about those outcomes. And those outcomes, those outcome based promises are convertible to a value proposition.
0: And so the ones who are willing to take those risks will get the rewards, but there are so many that there's nobody doing it. There's hardly
1: anybody doing it. Right. And so the original thesis that originated in the American construction industry really around 2004 was. Maybe we need an alternative top-down project delivery model. IPD, right? Which is IPD. Yeah. Which established a bunch of principles, but has not gotten a ton of traction. Right. Maybe four or five hundred projects right now are IPD projects mm. relative to the whole industry, not so great.
2: Mm.
1: I've been working on a research project with my good friend and colleague uh, Renee Chang, who's the Dean at the University of Washington, College of the Built Environment. Uh, sponsored by a Canadian construction company called Shandos that does a lot of IPD work. And we're looking at integration from the completely opposite direction. We're looking at integration bottom up. Mm. So we're looking at instances in the North American construction industry where some company has crossed an integration boundary between two or more of the canonical layers of the process, whether you're a, a designer a builder, an operator, or a regulator. And if you crossed one or more of those boundaries, in other words, into two of those zones, Mm -hmm. you're into some kind of episodic verticalization.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: We haven't finished the study yet, but we're looking to see if there's some kind of emergent theme coming from the bottom up. Mm -hmm. Renee spent a decade studying IPD from the top down. She's written numerous papers, done studies for GSA about the characteristics of IPD projects. But now we're looking from the opposite direction. I mean, I've only been a full-time academic for three years, so
2: mm-hmm.
1: I've got a ways to go to before I catch up with Renee's prodigious amount of work. Are there very many examples? Well, we didn't have any trouble making a, 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 a long list of about 60 companies. okay, And then we shortened it down to a to a list of about 20 that were interesting, that had interesting enough characteristics that we thought they might be able to tell us something. Interesting. And so um, we're still analyzing the data right now. Yeah. We spent a lot of time going, what are these things telling us?
0: Yeah. But, and are these, are these kind of startup companies types or are they more, they've been around for a long time?
1: A mix all of... across the board. Okay. Startups, old companies trying new things, big companies like Catera, little companies like Pockable, they're all across the board.
0: With the examples of the types of companies that have been around for a long time, is it a company-wide effort, or is it like an R and D lab within a company? Do you know?
1: I'm drawing an unsubstantiated conclusion. Mm-hmm. But the more established the company, the more of a science experiment than the mm-hmm. verticalization strategy is.
0: It's like they're incubating so, their so, own little startup. The newer the companies design.
1: are much more free about trying things. Sure. Unless you have an unnatural phenomenon like Catera, where they had so much cash they could just try all kinds of yeah.
2: throw
1: all kinds of crazy spaghetti at the wall, but right. the spaghetti is starting to rain back down on them now. Unfortunately, right, right,
0: yeah, it is unfortunate because it's the, it's those companies that are, are going to go through those successes and failures that are going to actually change the business.
1: Yeah, but you know there was a thesis about that that I think is really interesting, which was. There was a period of time in the startup era where one startup strategy was, you throw so much money at a company yep. that they own the space and no one else can get in. Right. So, you know, you you bankroll a dog walking company with $200 million in cash and nobody can touch
0: them. Right.
1: Well, I mean, that was SoftBank strategy with Katerra. Right. And it's interesting having thrown a billion dollars at it or whatever they've done. Yeah. More than a billion dollars. It's not working. Right. Not working. Yeah. Tough, tough industry.
0: Right. <laughs> Turns out. It, and so all of that kind of leads me back to where we started with education, right? Because in order to really go down this road effectively of, of trying new things, you have to educate differently, I mean, that's obviously what your course is about, but not every school has a course like that, and not every student takes it. And then there's the licensure part of it, too, which is licensing people for the way that we do or used to practice. And those are all kind of interconnected.
1: Yeah, but your question presumes that this kind of change happens bottom-up as opposed to Mm top-down. So if, if you wait long enough, if we wait another 20 years... From my recent graduate, my students who've recently graduated
2: yeah. become
1: leaders of firms, or say 15 years, you might start seeing some of these changes. But, you know, they get absorbed like the Borg into, yeah. into the traditions of the profession. And there are very few firms that can elbow their way into a new way of doing things. There are a few yeah. out there. They tend to be either very small theoretical practices or very big corporate practices that are sufficiently resourced that they can, they can afford to do right. a lot of experimentation. Right.
0: So with your students going out into the workforce, how are they dealing with the current situation with working out of, you know, wherever they live instead of going to work and learning through osmosis what senior project architects can um, bestow upon them just by sitting nearby? And I, I would imagine there's there's good stuff and bad stuff both happening at the same time here.
1: Yeah, but the, wor- the worst stuff is that very few of them are working. Mm-hmm. In the, the employment circumstances for our graduates from the class of 2020, and I'm extremely fortunate to teach in a place where our students, when the economy is okay, have no trouble getting jobs. Mm-hmm. Their issue is where do I want to work, mm-hmm. not whether or not I want to work. Sure. And so – they're thinking big thoughts and they want to do big things and they they're trying to decide what the best route for their career is. The class of twenty, I'd be surprised if thirty percent of them are working right now.
0: Mm. Are they really hunkering down and and continuing to push in that direction? Or are they going off on other tangents? It,
1: I, it's too early to tell. Mm. I think they're laying low. I think my guess is that the majority of them are laying low, waiting to see if the economy breaks. Yeah. Because I and I think the economy will break. Although I just I keep a very detailed record of the architectural buildings index. Mm-hmm. Like when it comes in, I update all my graphs. It just came in uh, today. I'm not sure when this thing's going to be posted. That data's embargoed for a week, but it's not good.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can it's imagine.
1: Continues to be bad. Yeah. My thesis, and I hope it's right, is that once we really get to. We, we get seriously to a hundred million people vaccinated mm-hmm. as opposed to a political fantasy of a hundred million people mm-hmm. vaccinated But the there's enough pent up demand that things are really going to break. So the question is how long can people hold out mm-hmm. before things break? Mm-hmm. The profession largely transitioned to remote work yeah. pretty easily. And my students that did get hired and a handful of them did get hired had had almost an entire semester of working remotely because the university, I mean, I we managed to get School of Architecture open and functioning in September, but March through June, we were completely 100% remote. Mm-hmm. So they had, they very quickly built those skills.
2: Yeah.
0: It seems like the remote work, though, to me, and at least in my experience recently, is that Things will go back to normal, and so therefore we're going to just use this tool as it is presented to us, and we're not really going to leverage, again, technology to take it to the next level uh, for what an architectural project demands or the interviews demand or the presentations
1: demand. Okay, I'm going to disagree with you. Okay, I I don't have a coherent theory, but I do have some data points. So one data point is when all of our students were forced to go digital, although it was... completely digital in our curriculum is very, uh, heterogeneous. We, our students draw by hand, mm-hmm. go to Rome and draw. They have, we have 60 3d printers in our building, mm-hmm. tremendous amount of model building. I think we have nine laser cutters for 200 students, lots of physical work. They mm-hmm. first, uh, summer of their first year, they, they go out in the field and build stuff. It's a very physical curriculum, but they all went digital. And although there was a high degree of misery, the quality of the work was spectacular. Mm-hmm. The work was fantastic this year. So that's that's kind of issue number one. Issue number two is there's enough digital, irrespective of whether the profession has leveraged it to its advantage in terms of productivity and value proposition, there's enough digital infrastructure in place that almost the entire profession shifted online in about two weeks. Mm-hmm. In about two weeks and everything was cool. And everybody's working. They weren't super happy about it, but everybody was working. together. Thirdly, as we talked about earlier, one of the best ways to increase your profit margins is to decrease your overhead. And I talked to the CEO of one major firm who has, you know, thousands of employees paying millions of dollars every month for rent. And his office is completely empty. Yeah. So, I do not believe we will go, we're just going to go, whoopee, take off your mask, show everybody your vaccination badge. Let's go back to where we were before. There's going to be some kind of hybridized model, sure. which from a firm's perspective has the advantage of being able to reach talent anywhere. Yeah. So if I have a really talented employee who wants to live in you know, East Banana, Idaho, as long as I can get her on an airplane and get her to my office once a month for a few days, maybe that's okay. Yeah. Or maybe she comes for two weeks for a charrette. Yeah,
0: I agree with everything that you said. I guess where I'm drawing the line is that this is the new default, and we're not taking it to additional levels beyond this for as far as collaboration, as far as experiencing architecture goes, um, because it's either talking head or showing sharing a screen, right?
1: So, okay. So what would you what what would you suggest?
0: Well, there there's a few new platforms that I'm pretty excited about. Uh, and this mainly circles around the idea of that kind of learning through osmosis for emerging professionals, where right now every meeting is scheduled, right? There's no dropping in. There's no. There's very little office hours kinds of a thing happening. So there's a couple few handful of these, these software platforms out there where they're actually applying a layer of space to online meetings so that you can go to an office and Famous podcasting air quotes here, and there's walls, and you can go into rooms, and they're proximity audio, so the closer you get to somebody, right. you can hear them and have conversations and tap yeah, somebody okay. on the I, shoulder. I, all
1: right, I get it. All right, so yeah. let me tell you a project that I'm working on right now. Okay, uh, and it's a complete science experiment mm-hmm. that I'm doing with some faculty colleagues. But we, we before the pandemic, I was working on a project on campus. Uh, to create a very detailed data set that documents Rudolph Hall, which is our, our famous Paul Rudolph building. But I was doing it to demonstrate to Yale facilities that a digital asset in the form of a building information model was a useful thing to use to manage the building. Mm-hmm. It was a science project. We had some students, local firm was collaborating, did a laser scan. And a- around March, we had a finished Revit model. And so we had this great digital asset, and we also had a faculty member who teaches uh, VR, but uh, AR and VR, but from a theoretical perspective, not as a technology. We decided we're going to do an experiment, which we just started a couple months ago. He took our Revit model of Rudolph Hall, and this is, a, this, this is a Paul Rudolph building with 37 levels and 43 staircases, mm. a very complex building. Yeah. And he converted it, he took it, he converted it into a gaming environment. Mm -hmm. He didn't render it in super realistic rendering. He rendered it in the style of a Paul Rudolph ink drawing. Mm -hmm. And then we put it into Unity. Mm -hmm. And we're starting to experiment with it as a social interaction platform. I love doing Exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that's fantastic. So like our students have this tradition um, called six on seven, which is at six PM every Friday night on the seventh floor, they have a little bit a little beer party. Mm-hmm. And it's that all of that stuff has been wiped away from our culture, and it's really a problem. Yeah. You know, like we're not together for lectures, we're not together for lunchtime seminars, we're not together in the studio. So I want a non-pedagogical platform for people to just go get together. Yeah. So next week we're hoping they're gonna try an experimental six on seven. In un- in Unity in this yeah. gaming right. platform, doing
0: exactly what you're
1: talking about.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. And and to me, I think that's such an interesting idea. Like that's going to play right back into your course about potential outcomes for an architectural practice. Like there is going to open up this whole realm of architectural architecture in the virtual that can be yeah, right. psychologically effective for people.
1: I agree, and I think it's probably the gateway drug to a future where actual full-scale human three-dimensional environments are hybridized yeah. between digital manifestations and physical manifestations. If my science project for Rudolph Hall really works, we're trying something that's probably overly ambitious, but there is a longstanding tradition in the Yale School of Architecture of playing badminton in the fourth-floor review pit. <laughs> they set up a badminton net at night. You know, They play doubles badminton. There's a tournament that goes all semester long called the Rudolph Open, and they play at night all semester long. And it's a big part of our culture. You know, it's just it's fun. Yeah, they go to the gym and practice. Yep. So my next phase two of our virtual Rudolph Hall is to see if we can set up virtual badminton in the virtual fourth floor pit of virtual Rudolph Hall. So we'll
0: see. <laughs> Highly competitive cool. virtual badminton. I can I can see it now.
1: It, awesome. it is actually quite competitive i'm games. sure it is <laughs> yeah, if you go on our website architecture.yale.edu you can see a video of these guys playing badminton and it's pretty fun that's awesome
0: so to bring that tech to everybody is not difficult anymore right it's it's so interesting to see like my mom got a new oculus quest too, right uh and if my mom's got one because they're 299 like practically everybody can have one. And mm-hmm. as a tool to experience things, whether it be architecture or out, the yep. outdoors, like I, I put that headset on and I was touring the Alps, right? From a drone kind of perspective, it's amazing. And it, and how it affects you psychologically is amazing, so much so that when you take it off, you're a little disappointed that it's gone. And I think we we found that in practice as well. When you're exploring a design that you've done and then you come back out into the office, it's a little bit disappointing. And so it, it really does kind of open up your eyes and your ideas about what space can do, even if it is virtual, as long as you are fully immersed within it. And that to me is really, really exciting stuff.
1: But I also think it begins to get interest. That whole concept begins to get interesting, not just, you know, experiencing the Alps flying in a virtual environment a drone, but... I think there's some really interesting questions about how that kind of an immersive environment can become a design environment Mm -hmm. where you can both understand and manipulate a design while in that immersive environment where you're somehow able to work on the design and understand the design and manipulate it
2: Mm -hmm.
1: in a perceptual space that's different than kind of traditional, you know, screen on screen. Right. Right relationship. I mean, in the early days of Revit, I used to describe my fantasy architect's workstation was, you know, three screens. The middle screen is the model of the building you're designing. The screen on the left is all your social media feeds. And the screen on the right are all the dashboards that are telling you what's going on with your design, Mm -hmm. the cost meter, your energy meter, your whatever meter. But I think there's a next generation idea around that where you, you're having that same kind of experience, but it's in a virtualized digital space.
0: Yeah, and what what's interesting to me too about these kind of new platforms is the way that uh, some of these, these startups are thinking about them as persistent space. So if you put something up on the wall in that space and then you leave it, and then you come back the next day, the stuff is still there on the wall. Yeah. And that's really interesting, right? Because previously, like if you do a Zoom meeting... Or, or a Teams meeting or whatever, like you're starting over every single time. You're wiping the slate clean, right? You're not, you're not coming back to a place.
1: Yeah, although there is technology that does that, which we're and I think a lot of other architecture schools are using extensively too. We've been, we've become highly dependent on this tool called Miro, mm-hmm. which is a big virtual space, like a big whiteboard. And right. so when you're having a like when we had final design reviews last spring, we did it again in fall. The students are each given us a pinup space in Miro. They pin up all their materials in this virtual space. Right. The review is a Zoom review, and the student is managing an interaction with Miro. But if you want to, you can walk around and dive into any student's work, including videos that are hung there. Mm. So it's a big sort of interactive canvas. Right. And it wasn't. It's not wildly expensive, it's pretty robust.
2: Right.
0: Oh, it's fantastic. And that
1: worked really well. So you could it's just like a regular review. You're kind of walking around the room looking at all the work, or you can stop in and listen to the one student who is presenting her work, but she's pre- presenting it from the Miro Pinup space. Yeah. That worked pretty well.
0: Yeah. No, that that is a that's a great example of that. And and I think that those types of persistent workspaces that are virtual are gaining importance all the time because you don't want to have to start over and pin everything back up every single day that you come back to it so that's again kind of pointing back to that comment that i was making about just using these platforms as the default but not going beyond them these are the types of things that i think architects need to leverage to really engage their clients to solve the problems for the buildings that they're designing
1: yeah i think you're right and i think i don't know i kind of think of my workspace here in my little home office as a kind of My Oculus is a three dimensional workspace. Mm. My old workspace was kind of two dimensional and it's getting to kind of two and a half because, you know, I've got one screen that I'm working on. I have another screen that's a a Cintiq touchpad. Right. Part of the time it just sits here like a second screen. Other times it sits on my desk and I'm drawing on it. Yeah. I had a meeting this morning on a really banal topic, financial aid. But my team knows that I am a relentless whiteboarder. I built a giant whiteboard in my office, which was the first whiteboard in Rudolph Hall. And so when we do these virtual meetings, I just whiteboard on my Cintiq and share the screen. So it's getting absolutely slowly getting there. And yeah. At the other end of the continuum, which is not workspaces, but how people actually experience space, I think you're going to see that divide getting really blurry. There's a really interesting firm in New York called um, ESI, Run by a guy named Ed Schlossberg. He just got uh, acquired by MBBJ. So he's running a studio inside of MBBJ, but they started out as museum exhibit designers. Then they got really good at digital museum exhibit designers. And then they became really good at these hybridized digitized environments. So when you walk into the lobby of a New York, you know, commercial office building and you see one of those massive digital walls right. that, that that's the kind of stuff they do and that's not just advertising that's the delamination of physical and digital space absolutely that's definitely coming
0: yeah and and i you can see applications for it immediately in in classrooms and healthcare patient rooms where you can yep. affect the psychology the behavior the 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 intent to which you or not the intent but the just the way that people can actually focus because of what's on those surfaces that are a thin film of digitization right i mean it's pretty pretty amazing stuff i yeah.
1: completely agree i think it's a very interesting kind of design vector that somebody should follow
0: do you do you guys do anything is experience design in that way at yale for like going beyond just the built edifice but actually applying these layers of technology or psychology i, as it were? I don't
1: i don't i think that our faculty would argue that everything they do is experienced so i'm not sure it's such a Line, I mean, out in the professional world, that line sort of exists. Yes, yeah, I'm not sure it exists in the pedagogical world yeah, of an architecture school, particularly because so much of the work is is heavily digitized. Yeah,
0: yeah, it's a I mean, there. people
1: produce you know videos of their work as a matter of course. No, there's not. I mean, they just the ability to produce. I mean, you want to talk about efficiency? The ability to produce. Quantities of high-resolution work. I mean, I think back to my time as a grad student in the early '80s, where you know, if I decided, I, if, I, if I decided I was going to build a small chipboard study model, that was the rest of Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> you know, now right. now you just send it to a 3D printer and go do something else. Yeah.
0: Or the or the the high definition, full color, fully textured, photoreal video output is just incredible.
1: Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Probably too incredible. Yeah. I mean, that's what's interesting about Jason Kim, who teaches our VR course. That's what's interesting about his work. He he produced this high-resolution version of Rudolph Hall, but instead of trying to make it look like a real experience, he texture mapped it as if Paul Rudolph had drawn it. Yeah. So, for example, one of the things you can do is you can position yourself in the middle of the model. And Rudolph, as you may remember, was famous for drawing these incredibly beautiful, complex, one-point perspective sections. Right. And you can walk through the building in a progressive section as it recedes in one-dimensional space rendered as if Paul Rudolph had drawn it. It's,
0: it's an amazing experience that that can be created. Absolutely. Oh, it's just mind-blowing. Yeah. Mind-blowing experience. I think there's something here. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. Well, this has been a fun conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time cool. and being so generous with it. And uh, I, I'm going to put links to as many things that we talked about as I can in the show notes so that people can check that out. There's so much more that we could talk about. So maybe, maybe another time, but, but again, thank you so much for spending the time today.
1: Yeah, my pleasure.
0: Thanks for hanging out with us today. This show is part of the Gable Media Podcast Network. You can see all the shows at gablemedia.com. That's g a b l m e d i a.com. You can help support what I'm doing here by leaving a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts, to help get the word out, and of course, share it with your friends. I'd love to hear from you, so leave a comment on the website at trxl.co/podcast where you can find every episode. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram and YouTube. Just search for E Troxel. Talk to you soon.